Blog Talk Radio.
the recent march that took place on the 30th of Washington, D.C., saying no to NATO. We hope to have them on that will follow our discussion as relates to our theme tonight. So that's the order of the lineup for tonight. You can participate by calling in at 323-679-0841. We welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Like always, the way we get started with that, get started with our party, we will introduce to you our panelists and analysts for today's program. We first will bring in and I'd like to talk and welcome to Brother Anthony. We welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony. And now we're bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, <clears throat> peace, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamafa Mishoki. Come with African awareness, and I'm all about institution building. You know, Brother Africa recently I read an article of a situation in Elkhart, Indiana, where the school actually provides food uh, for the poor kids. The kids actually get a, uh, at the end of the week, they get a, a combination of 20 frozen meals in which they can take home to feed themselves simply because the poverty is that great in this particular locale. And the mere fact it got me thinking that when we talk about poverty, particularly as it impacts students' ability to think or to, to, to be edu- come, come educated, it seems to me that in the African community and communities of poor people, it seems to me that this question of nutrition is a very important one. And given the fact that the, co- the country has no intent in terms of addressing these, these problems, it seems to me that the problem falls on the community in terms of some type of resolution. So it seems to me that institutions, we can't even conceivably get even address the situation in terms of poverty and importance of education to our young people. So it seems to me institutions are extremely important and people have to become busy in terms of building institutions because, in fact, institutions are uh, indispensable in terms of the, the situation we're confronted with. And, Brother Africa, I just want to thank you for having me on the show. Okay, finally, Brother Haki. And now we're bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Yes, uh, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. All right, thank you, Brother Moses. Palace, you can participate by calling in at 323 679 0841. Again, our program, there's just a special message I would like to share with the listening audience as relates to a loss of a dear one, my biological brother, Cleveland A. Green. He made his transition on March the 27th, 2019, and he was born March 23rd, 
Thank you. Rest in peace, Brother Cleveland Ape Green. All right, panelists, um, for today's agenda, let's get started with our party by discussing what's going on in your world and the community. We start out with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Uh, first of all, my deepest condolences uh, to you and your family on the transition of your brother. Uh, Brother Cleveland Green 
um, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is organizing our annual commemoration of African Liberation Day and, and Palestine Day 2019 on Saturday, May 18th, 2019, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time via a podcast symposium. For more information, you can contact us at 202-239-2676, or you can visit our website uh, for more information. More information will be forthcoming as um, as we finalize the activities for that day. Okay. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we'd like to bring in Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, welcome to Africa on the Move, and what's going on in your world and the community? Well, a couple of things. First, African Women Association, we do travel and road to liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. The trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. And for more information, we ask you to give, give us a call at 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go first hand and see Cuba for themselves and to glimpse uh, some of our lessons that we can learn from Cuba in terms of our own struggles right here in America. So we definitely encourage people to go to understand the importance of institutions and how it shapes people. Now, my second thing, Brother Africa, is that, you know, one of the things, you know, we talked about um, the, 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 the movement uh, the, in the world toward uh, a rightward drift, and we talked about this, this right-wing, um, 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 uh, I don't know what you call it, but this right-wing uh, movement, which is taking place throughout the world, and the question is, why is this taking place? One of the things I talked about last week was the fact that when we talk about uh, this right-wing drift of the world, we understand the role the U.S. government plays in terms of ensuring that these countries become like wings. So when we talk about this question in terms of Nazism, then we got to have to place the American government, particularly the intelligence community, squarely, and squarely as responsible for a lot of this right-wing drift. Um, in addition to that, the, the intelligence part, they play in terms of this, this, this conspiratorial nature, this right-wing drift. One of the things also we have to understand is that the uh, private enterprise in America is playing a big role in terms of uh, this right-wing drift that we're seeing around the world. You know, recently there was a journalist uh, by the name of Bilal Abdul uh, Karim, and uh, he's on the, the U.S. kill list. And the whole thing is that Bilal is a, he's a U.S. citizen, but he's a journalist, and he's been reporting recently out of Syria. Now, he's been on the list for a long, long time. In fact, he escapes assassination attempts on five different occasions. Now, he's been trying to remove himself from the kill list. Uh, but unfortunately, with the Pentagon mission is that he can't do that but it's in order for him to devout, and in fact, he's on the kill list, that will violate national security. So this question in terms of fascism and some of the sweeping fascism about the world, understand that its roots not only exist in America, but it's certain interests of America. And so therefore, people around the world got to understand this, 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 this right-wing drift. And one of the things recently about the Africa is that in Europe, they've been a, doing a, a lot in terms of financing these churches in Europe for the sole purposes of co-opting their institutions to ensure that they move to the right. And they've been spending tens of millions of dollars yearly for this whole purpose in terms of moving Europe to the right. And so there's very, very real danger, the very risk that society, that humanity faces throughout the world is a global problem. And so I think we have to begin to understand the role the U.S. play in terms of facilitating this, understand that America 
is now innocent in a stretch of imagination. So when we look at all this right-wing um, propaganda in the world, when we see the popping up these right-wing individuals in the world, they understand the U.S. plays an intimate role in terms of popping up these right-wing groups. And we have been saying here in America, the implicit threat imposed upon people of color and working-class people in society in terms of these kind of policies. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Um, well, it's been a rather slow week for me. I've, I've had some personal problems to deal with. Uh, um, of course, you know, the, the one of the things that the National Network on Cuba is offering a scholarship application for deadline of April 15th. Any scholars interested in in uh, writing something on on that in that area? Uh, okay, thank you. All right, thank you, Brother Moses. Um, Panelists, one of the I guess major news topics that people been discussing for over about close to a week now. Well, last week there was a brother out of California, LA who was a, went from one time being a uh, a gang member to joining the movement of the people, Nipsey Hustle. in terms of he made his transformation to serve the interests of the people, and he was greatly well-respect, and they said he was making a lot of positive contribution to African people and to diverse communities, out, not only the West Coast, what I understand, all over the world. But anyway, he was assassinated um, last week, and what y'all make of that particular phenomenon and the narratives that I've been talking about as relates to who he, who he was, who he was, what he was, and what to make up maybe the timing, the timing aspect of his death. He ended up being assassinated one day before has having to um, discuss with the police department in L.A. on how to better fight against crime, gang wars, etc. Uh, what do you do? Y'all make up this 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 particular um, phenomenon, brother mm. Anthony? You, you start off first. Sure. Um... Well, let's see. I think, um, you know, I think it shows that uh, that he made a transformation during the course of his life, and he wanted to be an example to his people. That's why he never left the neighborhood in which he grew up, even though he had amassed sufficient resources to do so. He wanted to provide encouragement to the youth that were around him that they could expire to something other than being, uh, you know, caught up in a gangster lifestyle. And uh, I think it's unfortunate, um, you know, the fact that we still fight amongst ourselves or or corrupted a great deal by, um, you know, the trappings of a capitalist society. And I think uh, the conditions... Uh, create an environment in which, you know, uh, you know, Africans kill one another, 
over, you know, things over either over jealousy or things that seem very trivial. And I think, um, you know, but I think the, you know, I think the positive is the fact that he tried to give back, because it was the masses of the people that made him famous that allowed him to acquire, you know, what wealth uh, he did have, and he understood that, and he tried to share and uh, give back to his community. Yeah, well, I think there's a certain um, paradox. Uh, you know, when you try to remain in the community and you become uh, an entrepreneur, uh, one of the things, when we look at the history in terms of uh, the brother in Queens, uh, used to be with DMC, uh, uh, Jail Master J, uh, he also stayed in the community, and as a consequence, ultimately he was killed. Uh, even though he was trying to do good for the community, he was ultimately killed. So when we look at the, at the case of Mr. Hustle, and he was killed in front of his store, one of the ironies is that you know, uh, the mere fact, you know, that he wasn't engaged in that life anymore and he was killed anyway raises suspicion that uh, who, 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 who really serves the interests of his interest in terms of his death? Uh, who really benefits from his death? And so we can't discount his death from, you know, um, strategic shenanigans uh, normally uh, employed, you know, by the state in terms of eliminating those people who they perceive potentially have the potential to actually reach people and to move people forward. And so, therefore, any type of uh, any individual who has that capability in the minds of those positions of power constitute a legitimate threat. So you, can't, you just simply can't take it off the table. And so even though that's conspiratorial, the, the question, it raises the question in terms of, you know, who benefits? Clearly, the masses of uh, people in, the, in the California don't benefit, nor the people from it. Uh, clearly, the gains don't benefit from, from his death. So the question is, who does benefit? Well, the only people I can think of who benefit would be those individuals who are threatened by his rise, his success, you know. Uh, so I think we've got to be very cognizant of, you know, that possibility. And uh, but, the, but the legacy that he left uh, is a very good one because it does, as Brother Anthony alluded to, it does um, serve to inspire young people that there's, there are possibilities, that the, despite the situation you, confi- you find yourself confronted with, there's possibility rising above that. So all it takes a little insight, a little thought a little driving determination in terms of achieving that. So I think he showed that kind of inspiration. So in that sense, his is, is, um, is passing was untimely. Hey, Moses, what's your take? Hello. Um, yeah, um... Um, let me say, I was not familiar with this brother before his death. And uh, I don't know if that's unfortunate, I guess. Uh, but uh, it sounds like he had a good good head on his shoulder and uh, and, and was moving in a progressive manner. And, uh, and uh, I, I agree with Brother Haki that, you know, the this, state, this you know, would, would be my number one suspect in this situation. Uh, uh, well, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Wilson. You know, Brother Hackey, I was sort of traveling down the same road that you were traveling down recently when you spoke about who served, who served the benefit from his assassination. And one of the things uh, one may will ask the question, understand the history of the various institutions that has historically oppressed African people and never had African people interested in heart 
is you know is the institution uh, institution of police. There have been some discussions around some of the communities of why he was willing to meet with the police and why would he think they really would have invested interest to want to clean up uh, the African community and, and have the African community doing the right thing. But historically, it was not designed to do that. And historically, it has a history, but African people have viewed that institution as not being their friend but their enemy. What do y'all make up that type of relationship, panelists? Um, I concur with you, Brother Africa. Um, if you look at historically, one of the one of the uh, tasks of the FBI has been to try to stop, uh, as J. Edgar Hoover once referred to it, the rise of a messiah within a community. In other words, someone who could galvanize African people and unite them in spite of the differences that exist amongst ourselves. And um, any time a political a figure emerges that, that would be capable of doing that, they, they, they try to um, neutralize that person. And I could give, you know, to give a couple of examples, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Adam Clayton Powell, Bob Marley, of Kwame Ture and numerous others, and uh, you know, so and 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 it's the enemies of our people that 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 stand to to benefit from uh, from their demise because uh, it tends to slow down the progress of the people. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, well, yes, we you can. know, there, there, is a, there, there is a bit of an irony when you talk about, uh, you know, working with the police. Uh, irrespective of the history, uh, one of the things in terms of institutions, one thing we have to understand, is to protect the powerful, to protect the wealthy, to protect their property. Their interest is not so to serve the community. And so in that context, uh, any kind of relationship with them can be based upon mutual respect for the community. That's very, very clear. That is not to say that there are not Africans out there, uh, African police and or others, who are conscious of what's going on, because they do exist. I mean, they do exist. As a matter of fact, Terry Albury was a black FBI agent, and one thing that he did so specifically, he kept on talking about the fact that the FBI was a tool of oppression against African people. Well, he's an FBI agent, and he said in the belly of the beast telling them that what you're doing is fundamentally wrong. Well, of course, they set him up. They ultimately convicted him with some espionage, and he's serving three years in prison. Similar to what they did to uh, the brother of the National Security Agency uh, some years back, in which, you know, uh, uh, Dick Cheney set him up. So clearly, there are people in, in law enforcement, in terms of the community, who are concerned about the, the abuse of African people by these institutions. But clearly, I think this brother is intelligent enough to understand that by forming a relationship with the police, that you did so at your own peril, because their interest is necessarily live with your interest. So one of the things is that what he did, he made it easier for them to, as they committed to actually killing him, he made it easier for them because he provided intel on what's useful for them in terms of carrying out his assassination. So I think it was a tactical error on that brother's part to even engage in that and understand, you know, that the police are fundamentally here not to just the community, but here to essentially protect the power from the else. What was your take? 
Yeah, well, the police, you know, are definitely not friends of the people. And, you know, so, you know, you do take things in your own hands when you go and try to make sense out of the chaos that they are all about. Um, so, you know, I just, I just, I just, uh, I'm sorry that the brother's gone, and uh, he seems to have been a positive influence. Thank you. You know, Panelist, one of the things I think we need to be careful of in terms of how they take positive situations and push the negative things to influence us in a way that will be beneficial to our way of being. When I'm speaking to, to the issue of the narrative of the brother they accused had done the killing, they highlight that brother and say, look, that was an African brother killed an African brother and therefore a black on black crime. Now, I think that we got to be real conscious of that because because you see an individual committing to the act, it does not mean that that individual may not represent something or cannot wishes for the power of the elite. Do y'all agree with that assessment? So in reality, it's not so important, it's not so much important many times when we do pull the trigger, but we must look at who was empowered to create those conditions to only, not only allow that to happen, but also maybe have even orchestrated that to happen. Would y'all agree with that assessment? Yes, I would. And um and the thing and um again, um to, uh, Malcolm X's assassination provides a classic example of that in which in which the conditions were, were created in which it made it seem as if it was the uh, the nation of Islam that did it, when really it was the FBI and CIA that was behind this assassination. Because uh you know, uh, you know, when looking at these things, you got to can take into consideration who provides the cover, who provides the weapons, who provides, you know, the, you know, the, the payment uh, to, to buy people off and whatnot. And uh, you know, so uh, you know, in this uh, kind of society, there's always more than meets the eye in terms of. Uh, you know, you know these kinds of uh, assassinations. Yeah, well, I, I think you know when you, when when they create the conditions that um, sort of reinforce this kind of uh, self hatred among our people, uh, it's very easy to manipulate our people to get them to do whatever they want them to do. Uh, you give them a good story, you give them a few dollars, they they'll do whatever you know, those in power tell them to do. So clearly the conditions are very important in terms of creating this kind of dynamic. So we got to be very clear on that point. Uh, and one of the things is that, you know, when you think about um, the kind of um, um, division that exists in the African Union around class, one of the things I'm mindful of the fact back in the, back in the 70s, uh, one of the things that Richard Nixon was very, very good at was, you know, social stratification, in which he was very good in terms of creating the system, creating the condition which says that people, middle-class African people were better than, African people who are working for rank and file. And so this notion that, in fact, that, they are, that what, they, what kind of job that they do or the kind of money they make or the kind of house they live in or the kind of, even the kind of car they drive was emblematic of the kind of 
human being that they are. And so, therefore, they had a, a self-interest in terms of seeing themselves as better than the African brothers and sisters who was impoverished and poor. So we talk about this kind of stratification society still with us today, and unfortunately, you know, um, it makes it possible. It creates the conditions to make it possible for this kind of thing to happen because it seems to me that one of the things that when, when law enforcement, anybody for that matter, approached you and said, listen, we're going to tell a brother or sister in the community who's done things for the people, then initially your response should be, get the fuck out of here. I'm not killing anybody, you know, um, particularly I'm not killing somebody who's out here doing something for the people. But it doesn't work that way always. Uh, we have this stratification, this, this mindset, this community in which we are pitted against one, one another. And because, you know, we, because of the kind of the proliferation of ignorance that exists in, in, in the community, uh, I think it's very easy for us to be manipulated and used. And so, unfortunately, until we eradicate that ignorance in the, among our people, at least a disproportionate number of our people, then we continue to be victims, you know, of these kind of strategies um, that are being perpetrated against our people. Moses. Yeah. Um, well, the situation it is one of uh, white supremacy and uh, and you know anti-black uh, situation we're faced with. Uh, and, and you know the president doesn't do anything but fuel the fire. Uh, so we have all the conditions uh, that are right for, you know, getting rid of conscious people. And uh, so, you know, this, you know, it's, it's just very suspicious, very, very suspicious. And I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. You know, Pally, just add a couple of nuggets to, to this phenomenon. Um, I don't know if y'all thought about it. But I'd like to hear your response to what you make up according to some of the, some of the sources I've heard from. People are talking about that the brother who accused of um, assassinating the brother, that he has acquired the lawyer, um, Doug, that was, you know, one one of the lawyers who used to, who went against O.J. Simpson, the O.J. Simpson case. He has acquired him as his attorney. Um, what do y'all make of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and this was very quickly. It's a normal process. Before they even finished the process of filing an appeal, this brother was already already acquired him to be his lawyer. Hmm. Sounds suspicious. I mean, um, I mean, because it's usually hard. To, to have the resources to acquire, you know, adequate representation that quickly. And um, it sounds like, um, you know, an effort ultimately to sow further division and doubt among, uh, among Africans. Yeah, well, I, I, I think in hiring Chris Darden, it gives a certain amount of visibility. So if he, if, so in fact, if he gets acquitted, I wouldn't be surprised at all. There's one thing that we know, that people often respond to, to celebrities. So Chris, Darden, so Chris Darden has a certain kind of celebrity. And so therefore, with him representing this, this guy, 
uh, it's very, very possible, you know, get that alone, the celebrity status alone, is enough to ensure an acquittal. So I'm sure that uh, it was strategically possible, and I'm sure if you look behind the scenes, the people who are responsible, who actually responsible for financing Chris Darden's defense of this, young, this fellow uh, is probably someone who doesn't have an interest of the community at heart. So I'm, like, like, like the brother say, I'm very suspicious of this move. Yeah, this uh, this is all within the purview of uh, of, of the state. I mean, these people who club noses together all the time, and uh, and so uh, this this lawyer uh, is, is in that social milieu, uh, and uh, so it, it only increases my suspicions. Uh, 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 something, something, something's not right. Something's not good. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you. And one of the good things temporarily that has come from this, based upon talking to and listening to some of the brothers and sisters from the community, is that there has been an outpour of love for this brother, and because of that. The last week or so, they said that they have, community have displayed such love for each other. They have so much peace and so much uh, interaction among each other positively, even with the games that have never came together before. They said all of the three major games is now doing things together, collaborating with each other, and they never seen it, but they said the community is so loving and such a great feeling. You see the, 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 this kind of dynamic to take place. The question is, given the fact we are not we are disorganized, we don't control our own uh, community. How long do you think this, this attitude and this feeling in our community will maintain? Will maintain this this feeling? Why are they going back to what it used to be? Um, I think it'll last as long as the media spotlight is on it. But as soon as um, it becomes old news, so to speak, without a permanent attempt, a permanent organization, then things will go back to business as usual, unfortunately. And um, and uh, sometimes there are incidents that occur in our communities, which get our people so fired up that they that that they'll uh, that, that that they'll get fired up. But without, but and they're mobilized. But without permanent organization, that energy cannot be sustained sustained over the long haul. And what we need to prevent these things from from continuing to happen in that community is permanent organization. No, it, it, it can't be it can't be sustained, and it can't be sustained simply because the focus is not there. Uh, one of the things that's a feel-good moment, and so to, to gain some together because it feels good, on the honor of the, the young people who were killed. But the bottom line is that if you don't have an understanding in terms of systematically how the system operates, then certain people wait for you to work together in the long term. So as long as this mentality rules where it's all about the capital, it's all about the bling-bling, then, of course, there's no incentive in terms of people working together over the long term. So in that context, institutions are extremely important. But the question is, can you get gains to work in terms of institutions to address the needs of the community? Uh, they used to back in the 60s and the 70s when they first started. 
But now it's a different mindset. And so until we can address that mindset in terms of game, it's very impossible to actually, you know, do something long term. Party 
and the fact that they represent the same ruling class interests, I think, turned off a lot of uh, a lot of the masses to the election process, and probably that was a major factor in the terms of the low voter turnout. The fact that the people feel they did they did not really have have a choice, and they really did not have uh, a, 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 any viable options. So they just, uh, you know, skip the process altogether. Now, the only thing that's somewhat historic is the fact that, uh, that, that, that I think of for the first time in history, a woman, uh, a sister, would be mayor of Chicago. But in terms of uh, that being of any benefit to the masses of the Africans that live in Chicago, uh, it, it seems to be uh, no based upon the track record of, uh, you know, the, the, the candidates that were running for mayor of the city. Brother Moses, your response to the election in Chicago? Yeah, this, um, I'm, not, I'm not up on the, 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 the politics of each one of these it's interesting that they were able to pull off with such a feat, though, uh, in terms of black woman being mayor of, of Chicago. Uh, uh, I, I don't know enough to comment on it right now. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, no problem. Well, let's stay with Chicago, and I'd like to get you all spin on the response of former Mayor Ron Emanuel and the police department as relates to the deal that the prosecutor cut with uh, on the actor Jesse Smoke from Empire and his lawyer are not bringing no charges against him as if he was really, um, as if he committed any crime. We know historically the prosecutor has been giving many a lot of latitude in terms of making decisions. For whatever reason, she saw fit not to really make any, any, bring about any charges against Jesse. As a result, you have a male along with the police department uh, calling for her resignation, and they have now filed a suit against Jesse, asking him to pay $130,000 the misuse of city resources. What do y'all make from this kind of response? If the historically prosecutors have always had leeway to prosecute or not prosecute. Well um Hackey, my brother, brother Anthony, okay. go ahead, go ahead, brother Anthony. Start us off. Yeah, um all right, well anyway, uh my thought is that uh, that that the, the, this challenge is uh, partly racially motivated, and uh, the argument that uh, Ron Emanuel was making is that it allegedly costs the city $130,000. You know, uh, for the you know the arrests and going through the tri- uh, uh, the, uh, the investigation process, and uh, they want to sue the prosecutor for something that, uh, that, 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 that she has the authority to do. 
wishes whether to pursue charges or not. And she chose not to pursue charges against Justice Mullet. And the reason and the reason why I think this food is first to because they usually once someone is not prosecuted, then it's, then it's over and done with. But yet they're going after him. Uh, so. Well, if he had not formed the charges, then Jackie, do you think he should be obligated to pay any money because of there are certain forces in Congo don't agree with the behavior of the prosecutor? No, he, he should be forced to pay because the the, the, the bottom line is that the, the citizen actually pay for the, the, the law enforcement. So this notion that somehow he's going to victimize him by making him pay for his own potential prosecution is absurd. But clearly they want to send a message. I think the message they want to send to the district attorney, this young sister, they want her to know that, listen, you need to, you need to toe the line. That even though they're not real grounds <laughs> in terms of you know pursuing charges against Justice Marlett, the mere fact that we want those charges because we want to criminalize the African community, and so therefore your job is to fall in line. Well, she refused to fall in line. So then what's going to happen now? And the system will send a message, not only to her, but all those in law enforcement, that when we go after African people, that your job is to fall in line. It's not to be independent. Even though the prosecutor's office is set up to be independent and make those kind of decisions, the mere fact that uh, this was an African woman uh, with the power to prosecute, and it was an African defendant, the mere fact that the system wanted, wanted him desperately in terms of setting an example of Justice Smollett, the mere fact that she didn't play ball, she's got to be punished. So people got to understand this is how the game is played. And so, you know, you know, my heart goes out to the system because what she's had to contend with is not easy because they're creating a condition where potentially she could get killed because of what they're doing. Uh, normally those kind of things are not politicized. When, when, when prosecutors make those decisions, normally it's dealt with in-house. But the mere fact that they're, pu- publishing, it to, they're, publishing, they're publishing it or they're articulating it outright to everybody, where everybody's exposed to their discontent with the prosecutor, means conceivably that you're setting her up to be killed. And that is, you know, that is Chicago politics, but it's not just Chicago politics, but it's endemic to America, but it's particularly politics in terms of Chicago. We talk about the kind of ruthlessness that, um, that are part of the, part, the Chicago land, landscape. So clearly, uh, you know, this notion in terms of using, you know, you know finding him $130,000 to punish him, to me, it seems unconstitutional. But in fact, but it doesn't matter about the constitutionality. It's all about power. And this is what the police, uh, the current mayor, uh, the system in general wants to convey, that they have the power and you must fall in line. And what did you make of this, Brother Moses, this behavior? Are you with us, Brother Moses? Okay, we'll come back to him. We have some technical difficulties. And last and not least, panelists. In terms of looking at what's going on inside the United States before we make our transition, start speaking on that thing. In terms of looking at just in general, overall, the things that's going on in the United States, um, just give us a synopsis of how you describe what are the major issues facing African people inside the United States as of today. Um, the world wants to know. So what would you say, Brother Anthony? Well, one, I think there's been an escalation of the violence perpetrated against Africans, which our youth and women are bearing the brunt of. 
And it seems as if it's intensified, uh, well, intensified even under the Obama administration, but it's gotten more intense over the last couple of years since uh, Trump has been in office. However, the problem runs deeper than uh, Trump. I think the fact that uh, that people are resisting um, uh, the demands of imperialism, people are rising up against the destruction of the plan, the planet, and the continued oppression has pro- 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 provoked a response from the ruling class of imperialism's ruling class that this must be stopped. And I think that is a key explanation as why there's been a rightward shift that Brother Haki alluded to earlier in terms of the political climate in the world. Uh, Imperialism, in spite of its might, is under attack by the working masses of the world. And in order to counter that, they're trying to put uh, military and political leadership in place that are total line in the interests of the ruling bourgeoisie. And I, and I think the U.S., being that it's the uh, biggest superpower in the world, uh, reflects this most vividly. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, uh, I think people should know that, that the working masses inside the U.S., particularly the Africans and the indigenous people, are catching hell right now because of the scarcity of resources and also the drive to make as much as many as much profit as possible off of our exploitation. Brother Aki, your analysis, what would you say to the world in terms of what is the reality of life inside the US as it relates to the African communities? <laughs> well, hey, hey, Brother Anthony hit it right on the head. The biggest problem in a nutshell is capitalism. Uh, one of the things we got to understand, you know, we talk about a situation where, you know, they, they print money out of, out of thin air, uh, you, you know, where the Federal Reserve can simply print money out of thin air. The thing we have to understand in printing money out of thin air, what that means is that people become rich, the 1% become wealthy simply, you know, by connections. They don't have to create, they don't have to produce. They have to employ, they have to do any of that stuff. They can simply, by virtue of their wealth, have access to large sums of money. And so, therefore, the kind of wealth they accrue doesn't need workers to make it possible. So normally when we think about in terms of people work, working, when people work, people labor, and in that process, people get rich as a result of people's labor. People work, create a product, they sell it. People who design their product get wealthy. Fine. Okay, that's the way it's supposed to work. But now when the Federal Reserve creates money, there is no incentive in terms of creating jobs for people because the wealth can be acquired anyway. And so, so this is the biggest threat. Now, here's the second thing, Brother Africa. When you, when you talk about this money being created and you give it to 1% of all that money, what happens is they consume all the assets. When we talk about housing, uh, businesses, even things like, um, things like apartments, uh, they, they, all those assets belong to the very, very wealthy. But what happened to what happened in terms of the price of those assets? Well, when we talk about housing and we talk about apartments or even the cost of cars, those prices elevate. They continue to rise, 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 rise. At the same time, the wages of the people, particularly African and the working class people, continue to go down, 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 or at the very least become very, very static. So the question is that given how the system operates in terms of you, this, this ever-increasing number of people 
who don't have access to jobs, who don't have access to, to who who don't have access to even the possibility of jobs. The question is, what do you do with all of these people that the system doesn't need? Well, the system position is that you got to find some creative means in terms of getting rid of all these people that you do not need. And this is the, the dilemma that's confronted African people. When we talk about the gig economy and we, and we talk about uh, that now, you know, there, there are no steady jobs anymore. You get what you can. If you can create something, then more power to you. But the bottom line is even the process of creating your own job, uh, your likelihood in terms of being able to support yourself becomes problematic, which means that you're not making the kind of money that you need in terms of the keep up with the cost of rent, the cost of the mortgage, and so forth and so on. So clearly when we talk about the, the, the dilemma of confronting the African community, as a working people, by and large, disproportionately, we depend on jobs in terms of livelihood, in terms of making it possible to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, to provide for our families. Well, those, well the problem is that that network, or that safety network, if you want to call it that, is no longer existing. It's, it's in decline. It's disappearing. And no matter how hard we try to we want to believe that, in fact, that you know, when, when Fox News tell us that everything's going to be okay, the economy is fine, and that the, the, the employment situation is, is, is positive, despite this, 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 this nonsense, the reality is that when, when, you, when you look at just anecdotally, when you look at in terms of the homelessness and the unemployment that exists in society, particularly in the African community, then it gives you a clear indication that what they're saying on Fox News isn't true. So clearly I think the biggest obstacle, biggest dilemma facing African people clearly is the economy. It's capitalism. Capitalism is in decline. And, and, and when we talk about this right-wing drift around the world, uh, and, and you talk about, uh, we got to understand, that wealthy people around the world operate as one. And so they got a vested interest in terms of making sure the, the world turns right. Because the world turns right, what it does, it pits work of people against people, and that's what they want. They want massive chaos. They want to pit people against each other. They want to pit black against white. Uh, they want to pit Muslim against non-Muslim. They want to pit a woman against man. They want to, they want to have this chaos because it serves their interest. So while we're confronted, while we're distracted with all these, with all, with, with, with what we see as, as problems, they're behind the scene manipulating political institutions, economic institutions for their benefit. Ultimately, ultimately one day we're going to look around and see that, you know what, uh, we are, in fact, slaves. And uh, so when we talk about the economy reset, that we are very, very clear that when we talk about the kind of machinations that the system, the particular economic system engages in, that we understand that these games that they play are the, are the interests of the ruling class. And that doesn't, well, it doesn't matter what the ruling class we're talking about in America, whether in Europe, whether in Asia, whether in Africa, whether Central America, South America, Caribbean, wherever they are. And so this is what we've got to understand. So the biggest obstacle for the African people is capitalism. Okay, um, Brother Moses, you would like to respond to what would you say to the world in terms of describing what's going on inside of the border of the United States as it relates to African people and oppressed communities here? What would be your narrative? What would you say to the world as of today? Okay, you see, I have a problem with technical problem, Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, I believe we have Sister Celine has joined us from Cameroon. Sister Celine, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Oh, thank you. Good evening. And how are you people doing? We're struggling, Sister. We, 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 we're trying to figure out how we can save Mother Africa, because by saving Mother Africa, we will save ourselves. So that's what we're trying to figure out. If you can help us out, we'll love it. But anyway, Sister Celine, 
We know you're in Cameroon. We're talking about what's going on in your world community. Give us an update or talk a little bit about what's going on in Cameroon. What's going on, what's going on in your world? Oh, in Cameroon, we are inside. We are still inside the crisis. The crisis have not finished. And the level that they have reached now is very high. It's the level of kidnapping and asking for a ransom. People are being kidnapped, and we don't know those who are kidnapping the people. You are kidnapped, and then you are asked for a ransom, much money. If you pay, then you are released. So it's a terrible situation. The crisis are going on and on and on. And we don't know what to do because our people are dying. So many people are dying. Some are left homeless. Hospitals are being burned down. Houses are being burned. Schools are being burned. People's houses are being burned. Even right to churches are burned. In the past, we knew that when you have a problem, you can go and hide in the hospital. You can run some from away from somebody who wants to harm you, and then you hide in the church. Or you go and hide in the palace. I've forgotten that. Palaces are being burned. Our funds are no more in their palaces. The palace was where the, the was called the auxiliary of the government. That means that the people that we used to gather the people together before the government can pass through them to meet the population. But now palaces are being burned. Funds are scattered. They are no more in their palaces. We don't know. The war is going on and on and on. Yes, I'm getting you. It sounds like your community is in a very defenseless position. You have no way of protecting yourself. What is the response? Many people say, what is the response of the Cameroon government? How are they dealing with their reality? Okay. Now, like this, the the, uh, Cameroonian government is asking um, the secessionists to put down their guns so that they can come to a round table discussion, they can be able to discuss and see how they can come to a compromise. But it's not easy. It's not easy. People are not accepting to lay down the guns. People only want to continue fighting and they say they want to secede. They want to divide the country so that this other country can go and this other one remain. And the problem is getting on and on and on. And the grassroots is suffering. The people of the grassroots who not nothing. They are the people who are suffering. They are the people who are losing their houses. They are the people who are losing their properties. Vehicles are being burned. You see one agency, let me say one express agency, losing about 10 vehicles, some losing five. Trailers of cocoa are being burned. So it's not easy. It's not easy. Our government is struggling how to stop it. Not that the government wants that the war should continue. Uh, Like last week, we had a meeting with the government. Uh, They decided that they should come in for discussion, but they should lay down guns and come in for discussion. So I don't know. 
uh, we are praying that as other people have started laying down their guns, others should lay, put down the guns too. Because there is nothing, no war that they have ever ended it without discussing. When there is war, they must come together to discuss about it on the table. And when they discuss it, that's where they, have a, they can have a solution for the problem. You come in and you tell me your own problem, what is your problem, and I tell you my own. And when we speak together, then we can come to a compromise, to a conclusion. So that's what the, I mean, the step that the government has taken. And we are waiting. Selene, I don't know if you if if you know concretely, but even speculate a little bit a little bit about the situation. Where are these forces, these suppers, getting their money and getting their resources from? What is the attitude of the French government, and what is the attitude of the Western countries like England and the U.S. as it relates to the crisis inside of Cameroon? How, where do they come in play? Hmm. Oh, what I want to say is that um, we know the, uh, the, the U.S. is the headquarters of the secessionists. They are there in the U.S. Even last week, uh, by on the 30th, was it on the 30th, the end of March, they had a meeting there, which they too are looking forward for discussion. They wanted that they should hold a meeting so that they can come up with their own leaders of uh, if they are called to come up for discussion, who would be their leaders. But somebody was in the meeting told me that when they went there, it was not easy. Even one cardinal who went there, they started abusing him and telling him that he should go to church. He should not come and stay, stand there and begin to talk about politics, that they don't want uh, to... They don't want any compromise. They want to succeed. And somebody was like telling me there's a group of 15 persons from Cameroon in the U.S. who are being kept by the American government, feeding them every week. They go to White House and hold meetings concerning this issue, meaning that this issue has people behind who are putting fire and making our young children to die, who are supporting it and making our children to die, children of 15, 14, 17 years carrying the gun. What do they know as gun is concerned? How long can they fight? Every day they are dying. The army is dying, the youth are dying, and all of them are our children. And we are missing them and feeling very bad. We are feeling very bad. People are rather homeless. Some are in the bushes. Some have run from the Anglophone area to the Francophone area, and they are there homeless. So it's a very sad situation. It's very sad. And the French role, the French government, how do they fit into the schemes of things? The French government, I've not heard what they are saying. Uh, what I heard is that uh, the government of Italy, in Italy, I don't know whether it was one mayor or somebody like that, important person, rose against France some two months ago, asking them to liberate Africa because 
they are our colonial masters. That they are the people who are making Africans to suffer and die in the Mediterranean Sea because of poverty every year. In the course of crossing the sea, going over to Europe to look for greener pastures. And they were counting 14 African countries that are being manipulated by France for all these years. So, some people say they are the people behind the, pro- the problem also in Cameroon. I don't know what they want. It's not easy. They are making us to suffer. It's not easy in this country. You need to come here and you see the way children are dying. You see the way army are being butchered. The way those secessionists are being killed. They are our children. We, the women, are feeling the pain because they are the, we are the people who are delivering these children. It's not easy. The war is not between animals. It's not between some demons. It's between human beings. When you see them killed, it's painful. It's painful, very painful to me. Even if some people look at it as child play. I love human beings. I love my African people. And I don't like to see them die. People in one country just killing themselves like that is really terrible. I even get into nerves. I was sick of nerves, and I'm still suffering from gastritis. And they say the reason is because I'm thinking too much. Is it any way I can stay without thinking? Because I see people dying like that. I see people hungry. I see people dying because they don't have money for medication. I see people dying because they don't have food to eat. You know, in war, hunger even kills people more than a bullet. Civilians are being killed with bullets. Celine, I'll let my yeah. panelists speak mm-hmm. to you for a few minutes before we do that for our listening audience. We know Africa has many resources. Can you tell us what are some of the major resources in Cameroon and, um, and who control them? In Cameroon, we have cocoa, we have timber, we have coffee. We have gold, we have oil, we have rubber in Cameroon, we grow bananas. I can say that nearly everything in this world grows in Cameroon. Cameroon is a very rich country as far as agriculture is concerned. We have the mangrove forest, we have the savannah. We have the temple zone, meaning that we have all the zones that grows everything in Africa, in the whole world. That's why they call Cameroon uh, the world of nature, because they have all the climates of the world that they can grow anything. We have climates that will grow all the things that are planted in Europe, and we have the climate that grows things in other, that other countries don't even have. I tell you, they used to call Cameroon the island of peace, the island of cools, because we have never had a cool. We have been living in peace. And I don't know what has happened. It's, it's painful. It's terrible. Those are the things that are being produced in Cameroon. I know there are other uh, um, 
other minerals that they have not yet discovered them. We have gold in Cameroon. There are other minerals that have not started tapping them. We have minerals in Cameroon. Bosa is a mark in other places. Mm-hmm. And they have not started tapping it. Even late. You know, it's late in Cameroon. Okay, let me go to my panelists. Brother Anthony, uh, as a Pan-Africanist, understanding the history of the institution of rural African Liberation Day, how can this institution play a role in terms of addressing or assisting the phenomenon that's going on in Cameroon? What would be your answer to that, to that question, Brother Anthony? Okay. Well, one of uh, the objectives of African Liberation Day is to try to identify other Pan-Africanist forces that are fighting for the unification and liberation of Africa. And, uh, and uh, we could assist that by, um, by sharing our experiences with the Africans in Cameroon, and they could share their experiences with us, as Sister Celine is doing tonight. And uh, so I think, you know, um, the African Revolution has a very vital role to play. And um, I would say that, um, you know, that in other parts of Africa, such as the Congo, uh, Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe, it is the women and the youth that seem to be bearing the the brunt of the political repression that is going on in our homeland. And, um, you know, what you described, Sister Celine, sounds very similar to what's going on in the Congo, for example, and also uh, to a certain extent in Zimbabwe. The youth are bearing a brunt, and the women, of course, of uh, of the repression and violence that's being perpetrated against our people. Brother Haki, when you hear of the concerns that are going on in Africa, and in this case we talk about Cameroon, when you hear of the concerns going on like in Venezuela with the African community, when you hear the concerns that are going on in Haiti, um, what do you say? How do you deal with these, these issues that are confronting our people on a global basis? How do you, what do you say to a sister like Celine and her people, and our people there? Well, first, let me just let me just um, <clears throat> um, give my uh, my uh, love to Sister Celine for her courage to actually even talk about what's going on in Africa because it's not easy. Uh, I do realize. In all my many, many years of travel through Africa, I do realize that uh, it's not easy speaking out. And so I encourage her for her, her diligence and her um, her, her uh, strength in terms of being able to actually talk about what's going on. Uh, one of the things in terms of addressing this problem, which is, in fact, global, I think first and foremost, we have to adopt the African character. We have to understand we're African people, which has to transcend tribe. It has to transcend ethnicity. It has to transcend culture. I think that's first and foremost. I think we have to objectively understand that there's a system in place which is diametrically opposed to the to the to the interest of African people, no matter what it be on the globe. And once we have that understanding, I think it's easy to understand who our enemies are, who 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 is it that we have to uh, who is it we have to prevent 
uh, from carrying out its agenda. Unless we can do that, brother Africa, uh, it's very, it's, it's almost difficult. It's almost impossible to actually remedy the situation if we don't adequately define who our adversaries are. And right now, what happens is that Tuna Brothers have embraced these Western values in terms of this whole notion, in terms of things defining who we are. And so we think it's all about money and power, and we don't understand that in the context of pursuing money and power, <clears throat> we fail to understand that those with greater money and greater amount of power are exploiting us. And so, therefore, we have to reject these Western values and say that those things define us as human beings. To some large extent, we have to reclaim our history as an African people. And I understand that in my many travels to Africa, one of the things that makes me very, very sad is that when I go to the schools and you talk to people and you talk about African curriculum, it's non-existent. But when you talk about the West, damn, everything is about the West. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's though Africa doesn't exist. So kids are being indoctrinated to believe that, in fact, they don't have a history. So I think that has to fundamentally change. And I think we need leaders in Africa who understand that fundamental challenge. And they're doing a lot of that in South Africa right now, which is good. But we need to implement that curriculum in terms of African studies. African children must understand African history. We must know it. Not just on the continent of Africa, but Africans throughout the diaspora must know who we are. It's very, very important that we understand that. Because if we don't, we deceive ourselves into believing that our, our interests are, are defined by those who oppress us. As Sister Celine says, she talked about the colonial masters. Where in Kenya recently, they talked about the fact that they spent $150,000 for the sole purpose of bringing in stupid ass wigs to put on their head for the court, for the court people, for the judges in the courts. How absurd is that? To what extent, how much have we been indoctrinated to believe that what's the way of doing things is the only way of doing things? We have our own history in terms of doing things. But we have to understand what that history is and we have to study it. And so I, I think one thing we have to do, we have to have that curriculum and Sister Celine, you know, deal with women issues, which is very, very important. And I would, I would say also in addition to the women's issues, deal with the African history aspect in terms of understanding much about African history and making sure it's institutionalized and making sure that our young people, our children particularly, grow up to understand that African history, understand who they are, understand their abilities to think independent of what the Western world tells them to think. So I think uh, those are the things that have to happen in terms of being a, a true independent uh, Africa. But it's going to take organization. That's not going to skirt net. I mean, that's no getting around that. We, have, we, we need an organization. The African Union simply ain't, ain't doing a job. So unless we can get some new leadership in the African Union that's going to raise the banner in terms of you know, African unity or, central, or, or, social, or scientifically socialized Africa, unless they're willing to do that, then they need to step aside and need new leadership in the African Union to make sure uh, that we have that kind of mindset so we can put an end to the Western exploitation and this pit one African against another for the sole purpose of the benefits of the West. So we need some clarity in terms of what the struggle is all about. And I think one of the things we can, one of the ways we can go about doing that is certainly to clarify who we are as a people. You know, Brother Moses, Mother Africa need our help. What would you suggest the things you make it do in terms of assisting Mother Africa at this point in time? Particularly when talking to our sister, Dan Cameron, what would you say to the listening audience? Hello. Away from Brother Moses. Hello. Yes, Brother Moses. Yes, Brother Moses. We need to politicize this. We need to politicize this situation so that more people know about what's going on. Uh, That would be the key thing, I think. Uh, more eyes on this situation, the better off it will be. And uh, I don't 
you know, we 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 can start some kind of fundraisers or something. Uh, uh, I'm, I'll I'll leave it right there. I, I'm, I'm not sure what what else we could okay, do. Okay, no problem. Sorry. Sister Celine, what would you I'm suggest you. in terms? What would you suggest in terms of how can people around the world and African people particularly help you, your organization, and the situation in Cameroon? Can you have people some tangible things that you know can be done on the ground where it assist you? In the, in the capacity to better um, empower women and to defend your community? Oh, the first thing is uh, our children are not even going to school now for three good years. I've never seen a war that they're fighting and then they seize the right of the children from going to school. It's not easy. If children don't go to school, very soon they'll become so foolish to not know they are left and right. And those are the things that they want, how they want our children to be so that they cannot reason. Because without education, people will not reason like the other people. Um, what I want to, uh, what we feel, what I'm saying that if it is done, it can really help our women, but now is that they need food. Those who have run into the bushes, those who are internally displaced, they need food. You know, in war, most of the people die because they having food. Not even bullets kill people, but hunger kills people more than the bullet. They need food. Uh, secondly, they need uh, medication. They need dresses. Some people's homes are burned, and they remain with what they had on their bodies without anything to wear. They need food. They need medication. They need dressing. The children will have to go to school, I think, by September. I'm sure if there was money, we can transfer them, some of the children, to the La Republic area where the rich people have sent also their own children. The rich people in the Anglophone area have been sending their children to the uh, um, uh, Francophone area, and they are going to school. So it's like, I don't know what they are fighting, because you can't say you are against somebody, and then you carry your children and go and give to the person. What are we fighting? What is happening to our country? For the women... In the village, I know that the women in our cooperative, they are farmers. They are mostly farmers. Cameroonians are mostly farmers. So they have been doing production, and to process things, they do, they do it manually, and it is difficult to produce, to, to process things with their bare hands. So they need equipment. They need uh, machines for processing drying, packaging, and they need good markets with good roads that they can carry their goods to the market. Because when they have the, their goods to sell, the place that they have good markets is far. And they carry it on their back because we don't have roads. 
We have oil in Cameroon, but we don't have roads. We cannot have tar roads. It's a shameful thing that we can produce oil, but we cannot have good roads in our country. You know, Sydney, you mentioned earlier that as part of a woman co-op, co-op, you produce certain things, but you have no way to get them to the public or to export them. Um, mm-hmm. Would you be interested? Would you be interested in setting up partnerships where you can sit there and agree upon certain partners that could play maybe a role in terms of being able to get the goods that the co-op, co-op can produce and export them in places where resources can come in more, so you can do more things inside of Cameroon. Would that be feasible? And if so, how do the people contact you? How do they contact your organization? Who might want to work with y'all? We we like uh, to have a uh, that we can do business business partners that we can do business together, and uh, we have our contact. We can be in Cameroon, an organization that people know without contact. Uh, we are registered with the government. The government knows us, and we have been struggling. So it's not easy because in Cameroon there are so many of them. We have our address that you can contact us. I think uh, my phone number is zero one one two three seven six seven seven three three. Two one four five zero one one two three seven three three two one four five. Or what about the email? Uh, what is the email you direct? Yes. Um, okay. Email is uh, Naya Selene at yahoo.co dot uk naya selene at yahoo dot co dot uk um, our our post box oh my 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 I didn't look for it in time okay our post box is where is it written Oh my God! So then what we can do is have another program. Yes, we will, we will invite you back to next week where you can share that information with the people. But right now, what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to go into a station break, and when we come back, we're gonna make a transition to tonight's theme, and that is part three, titled "A State of Being." But you can stay on as well and participate. So right now, we're going to tell everybody we're going to take a two to three minutes break. Pause for the calls. Can I? And when we come, can I give you? Yes. Can I give you the post box number? Yes, go ahead, Celine. Yes, you can. Okay, P.O. Box three one three three nine. B M C B I Y E M A S S I 
Cameroon. And the name of the organization they were sent it to? The name of the organization is uh, Mundani Believing Women Cooperative, Roots and Tubas Cooperative. Mundani Believing Women Youth and Roots and Tubas Cooperative, which is abbreviated MUBWET, MUBWET, MUBWET. Uh, we have an, our, uh, an account number in Afriland, Afriland First Bank. And what I would do, certainly right now, is I would suggest that people write you and you would send them that information. So they have a number okay. and an email. At this time, I think it would be more sufficient to do and get additional information, okay? So let's pause for okay. this station break. And we'll be right back. You'll listen to Africa on the Moon. And when we come back, we're going to start tonight's theme, which is part three, is State of Being. And we're going to talk about the use of movie stars. How do they use movie stars in the African community against the interests of the African community? There's the article titled, Dwayne the Rock Johnson Get Backlash After He Celebrate Having an Army Tank Named After Him. We're going to talk about that and more when we return. This is Africa on the Moon.
like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. That's right, we're stolen from Africa and brought to America. Fighting upon our survival and still fighting for, fighting for upon our arrival, still fighting for our survival. We'd like to welcome you back. We now will make our transition to dealing with the theme, part three, is State of Being. And there was an article titled Dwayne the Rock Johnson gets backlash after he celebrate having an army tank named after him. Let me just read a little brief introduction and I will post this question to my political panelists. It states that over the weekend the actor shared this news that a tank in the first armored division of Fort Bliss has been named after him according to the local El Paso Times. The name was selected by soldiers for for the Black Hawk Squadron, who last year named another tank Drap as a Baby. So my question to the panelists today as I went through this article, it raises several questions. One is, are the so-called African movie stars being used as a propaganda tool against interest of African people and humanity by using their name, using their status and be associated with something that is definitely not in their interest. What is the advantage of having a tank in your name, understanding the role and purpose of the tank? Why would you want to have anything of that symbolism representing you in your name? Brother Anthony, when you read that article, what do you think about Rock if you accept the so-called uh, naming of a tank in his name? Well, he seems as if he was honored by it. And mm-hmm. uh, this is disheartening, but uh, bear in mind that Dwayne Johnson, since his acting career started, has ma- has played either soldiers or, mil- or, or agents in most of his uh, theatrical roles, so I think uh, I think it, this reflects. This is consistent with a history of um, you know of the um, uh, uh, the military and police using Africans to promote uh, you know uh, U.S. policy, and uh, you know another and. Um, this is just a continuation of that, and it seems like a lot of a lot of the African movies uh, celebrities are making their money playing either soldiers or or military agents, uh, and um, they seem to glorify that fact. And uh, it could be, um, you know, that they're out uh, for the for the the money it gives them uh, on the military side, it makes the military more attractive to unsuspecting African youth. And uh, Dwayne Johnson, because of his career as a wrestler and an actor, has a big following. So I think the influence is dangerous. Brother Hackey, there seems to be another... Another example of how Hollywood reduced propaganda to a 
influence African people to become more pro-war, pro-militarization, and um, seem to have no respect for 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 the love of life and and love of people. Hollywood is playing this role today. It plays their role yesterday and played their role in the past. That's why many people understand Hollywood as an institution has always been a propaganda tool against the interests of African people and oppressed humanity. Your response to that statement? That's that's quite true. That's quite true. After, um, Hollywood plays a big role in terms of propagandizing the, the communities. Uh, one of the things, in specific, when we talk about rock, two things we got to understand that rock makes a lot about, just estimate he makes about $20 million per picture. And so he's got a real incentive, at least in his mind, in terms of, you know, being apolitical. Uh, one of the things recently, the situation, well, not recently, about about a year ago, uh, the famous Hulk Hogan, you know, talked about uh, use the N-word. Well, they asked Rock his response to that. Well, Rock, the Rock's response <clears throat> uh, was, was, was very, very, uh, uh, very, very, um, I guess I should say apolitical. Uh, it was, he sort of soft, so, you know, his response. I mean, his response wasn't, you know, uh, indicative of one who's actually trying to bring home the point that this kind of racism is pervasive and it's wrong and it has to stop. It was, it was more like, well, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that happened. You know, uh, I know Hulk Hogan. You know, my father trained him. So I, I don't, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm confused. And that was the end of that. Well, he understands he has a brand. He understands as long as he stays true to the script, uh, that's money to be coming to him. And so, therefore, I'm not surprised that the military would use, you know, use his name as as a recruiting tool uh, to promote to young African children uh, that uh, the military is, is a viable choice. Because one of the things they've been having problems with is that with this whole question around conscription. They've been having a very difficult time in terms of getting African kids, uh, young people, children, African children, to enlist in the military, African youth to uh, enlist in the military. And for the establishment, that's problematic because when they uh, enlisted African youth into the, to the to war, they killed two birds, one stone. You can create the potentiality that they be killed and thus eliminate them. Or certainly you can uh, <clears throat> certainly you can uh, get them out. You know, certainly uh, you 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 you, um, you 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 the pop, the probability that you can indoctrinate them in terms of your way of thinking increases exponentially once you get them to the military and you condition and you socialize them to think this is the way things should be done. So I I think that uh, you know Rock we we shouldn't we shouldn't expect nor anticipate Rock to actually stand up and say and take a real hard view in terms of you know using his name in terms of military adventures. Uh, because his whole thing, as Anthony alluded to, is that all the roles he plays always being pretty much non-traditional as far as African actors are concerned. You know, he's always, you know, a police or military or intelligence or something like that. Of course, in the real world, when we, we talk about just in terms of sheer numbers, uh, African people numbers are not uh, are solely lacking. But yet, these pictures continue to betray you the rock as being the epitome of uh you know uh you know um access for African people who want to do those particular kind of jobs. Not that I'm advocating they should do those kind of jobs. They shouldn't. But if but if they but the whole point is that if in fact if they were as open as they said they were, then there'll really be no need in terms of the propaganda. So propaganda is useful in terms of Hollywood. They've been doing it for a long, long time and they're not going to stop. Uh is 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 coming upon us as Paul Mooney would say, you know, to you know to you know, to break down the door and to change this this 
you know, this, 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 this program, this programming, and to implement uh, programs which are meaningful, which tend to elevate, which can get people to think. Uh, those kind of programs, uh, which are, you know, uh, not likely to be funded, but nonetheless need to be need to be uh, presented on on, on on the big screen. So I think that uh, yeah, uh, that's part of the course, Brother Africa. I'm not surprised that they did that, and I'm not surprised that Rock Response was half-hearted. That in fact he supports um, this move to make this tank. Uh, you know, a rock junior or whatever the hell it is. You know, Brother Moses, I see this in the form of what some may call the making of a, the making of a, some was a prostitute, some was a hoe, some was a trick. Whereas you have certain carrots, if you want the carrots, carrots, you have to do what that person says. For example, in Hollywood, many of the so-called African actors or actresses, they have to dance to the music in terms of whatever they ask them to do, or else they no longer have access to the money. Do you think this is a good example of that, of that, that phenomenon, Brother Moses, as you read this article? We can yes. Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hello? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think this, this uh, 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 block has, has played macho men, patriotic men, uh, gogo, marine corps type people, and uh, you know, it's keeping with his image, I guess. And uh, so, you know, he's proud of it. And, uh, and uh, he has no consciousness of of, of uh, the U.S. government, this real role, evidently. And so he's just another actor. I don't know. I, I don't have much to say about it. I'll leave it alone. Thank you. Okay. Well, apparently, you know, one of the major weapons that, that, that faces all oppressed people and communities is is the weapon of dealing with ideas. How long we continue to allow the actors and the actors to create, present ideas that are not beneficial to the better development of youth and their people and saying it's all right to do that because they have to work or they need a job. Your response to that scenario? Brother Hackey, start us off. Your take on that phenomenon. Well, you know, Brother Africa, is a very, that's a very somewhat complex question because the whole point is that one of the things is what you're advocating is that people consciously understand in terms of, you know, how roles impact the way they, they, uh, they, they think or the way they feel. So likewise, when we talk about institutions, often we talk about the fact that institutions impact the way people behave, uh, the things that they do, their ability to work together, their ability to get along together, to get along. Uh, and people don't understand the fundamental concept, in part because the, the the system doesn't want people to understand that. And so it spends billions and billions of dollars to make sure that people never get that fundamental understanding. So when on a more personal level, when we start asking people, say, okay, now we want you to start critiquing these, these, these movie stars and the roles that they play and not patronize them because you want to send a message that you don't support you know, this kind of, kind of deception. Well, it's a very tough sale because one of the things that, unfortunately, what people are seeing is they've seen an act on the screen, and what they're thinking the dollars and cents and notoriety, that this person has some fame. And so, into their mind, that is probably the most important thing. 
the, polit- the political aspect, uh, unfortunately, we haven't got to that point in society yet in America where we organize community to the extent that their consciousness is such that they instinctively look at those kind of things and say, mm-hmm, you know, I'm not looking at it. I'm not going to patronize it. I'm, you, know, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to articulate my discontent because I'm tired of seeing, you know, these, these, these brothers and sisters, you know, as police officers, military intelligence, and all this kind of thing. All these institutions are diametrically opposed to the interests of people who look like me. So you're asking a very complex question. I, I wish I had a more simple, uh, more direct response to what you're asking. But uh, without the institutions to, 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 to enhance their consciousness in our people, where they become conscious of understanding how images impact the way they see themselves, but not only that, but the way the world sees African people. Because one of the things that makes me sad about Africa, in my many, many decades of travel through Africa, when I look at television, I see these images of African people. None are ever positive. None are ever positive. It's used stereotypes. Dancing, singing, and, 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 and playing sports. There's nothing wrong with that. But our existence is a bit more complex than that. Our history is a bit more complex than that. But we continue to be portrayed as doing all of those things. And people in the world think that when you see an African born in America, well, this is a great lover. Well, he's a good athlete. Oh, well, um, you know, um, you know, um, must be a hell of a basketball player. You know, and, and so, and so, yeah, but it's, 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 it's a direct response to the propaganda that's being perpetuated throughout the world. And so we understand that not only this, 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 this image impacts on where people think around the world, particularly on the African continent and throughout the world, but it also impacts on Africans right here in America. So, therefore, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of consciousness building. It takes institutions in terms of creating that mindset in our people, and we're some ways from that. So the struggle continues. That's all I can say, brother. All right, Brother Haki, thank you, Brother Anthony. Uh, what's your take on that phenomenon? How do you make well, these actors and actors become more responsible in terms of roles and the images they play as relates to the impact they may have on our community, and particularly our youth? Well, the community, the, the impact they have on our community is pre- pre- predominantly negative. Uh, and I concur with some of the points Haki made I would add that what it's going to take is we, in addition to organization, we have to politically educate our people. That's the only way we're going to be able to raise our people's consciousness level to understand uh, the impact that these roles have on us and the fact that we get to the point where we're not going to patronize uh, these forms of entertainment in which uh, uh, you know, we're portrayed in this fashion. But it's going to take a lot of organization and political education among ourselves to raise our consciousness so that we get to the point where Africans will not play those type of roles. But now, but, but the reason that why they, get, they play those roles is because they get paid to do so. And... Uh, and uh, the fact that our image takes such a beating is be- reflects our lack of this organization and therefore the disrespect we have around the world uh, because uh, we have not worked ourselves to stand up and assert our cultural values. So we have to organize to teach ourselves, our culture, and and the full dimensions of our humanity. Brother Moses, your response. Yeah, 
What was the question again? The question is, how do we respond to actors or actresses who play roles that are not positive for our community and for our youth? How do we make them become more accountable to being conscious of roles that are not beneficial to the development of our people? We have to stop supporting those studios and those those uh, outlets that uh, perpetuate the, the actors and actresses. Uh, if people consciously uh, stop patronizing those actors that, that don't conform to 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 the ideological and, and political needs of our people, then. Uh, we, you know, art should serve the revolution, and so you know, when we have a counter-revolutionary, reactionary things going on. We have to oppose that and uh, expose it for what it is, and boycott it. Thank you. Okay, panelists, we have a few minutes left. I'd like to make a quick transition to this next article, which. Um, Definitely speak to the point of a state of being. What are the present conditions we are living under as relates to the whole concept of controlling uh, the very forms of communication or how we communicate with one another and what impact the different tools we use in terms of identifying the behaviors, the locations, the whereabouts of our activities. And I'm speaking to this article that was written by Jack Corn on February 25th that is titled, Your iPhone has a hidden list of every location you'll be in. It's called the Significant Locations List, and you probably don't know it exists. Now, panelists, the thesis of the article is that on all the iPhone, on all the iPhone, it has a special device called Significant Locations for yield and list every movement everywhere you have been on your phone and you don't know this particular feature of the phone exists and it made it very difficult for people to know that. My question becomes, looking at this, these phones as a tool of oppression, but at the same time, we know we got to find ways to communicate each other. How do we educate ourselves to how to best use the iPhones and other tools that may be presented to us be presented to us and whether or not it may be the best tool to use at this present time in terms of for the interest of communication and do the things that we need to do in order to organize ourselves and free ourselves from this bondage that we're dealing with. Father Anthony, response to this question of using these apps iPhones as a tool for communication and its, its implication based on reading this article? Uh, well, let's see. Um, the article, as as the author indicated, is more of a FYI than an attack on the technology per se. We just mm-hmm. got to understand that with any technology that we that we use, whether we're talking about the smart television, the computer, Android or uh, iPhone, uh, its limitations. 
and also as as well as its uh, potentialities. It can be a useful the useful tool for communicating, but you know, but the thing about it, though, you got to be familiar with the the tracking features associated with that, and as well as how you know, at a certain point in time, you might want to disable that, and um, so it's about. Um, and like any tool, you just got. It's important to understand how to use it and what its limitations are. Okay, and well, I yeah. think if yeah, go ahead. Yeah, understand what its limitations are, and then um, and then uh, master that, and then uh, so that we could actually uh, you know improve upon it. And can control that technology ourselves. I think one of the questions Brother Hackey folks would ask when you create a device, what's the purpose of even putting this feature on the phone? It didn't have to be. Your response? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, pre, it's pretty easy why it's on, it's on the phone. It's, we're talking about a surveillance state. And so the whole notion is that the, uh, the government is preoccupied in terms of what you're doing, where you're at what you're doing at every moment of the day. So it just makes sense. And in addition to that, it's also economically, it's very, very feasible uh, for these tech companies to engage in this kind of technology, simply because they can sell it to government. They can make billions and billions of dollars, you know, sell it to the government. And so therefore, it's a real incentive in terms of making sure you have this kind of te- technology uh, uh, available. So I think in terms of being able to, to help us, I think at this point in time, I think most people realize that the television the mobile phones, uh, all of the stuff is quite capable in terms of monitoring you, uh, and literally seeing you as you as you as you engage, you know these 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 these, uh, these tools. So I think that in the, to the extent that we can usually communicate, yes, the question in terms of what kind of communication are you talking about? If you're talking about real intricate kind of communications, then of course not, you cannot. The general kind of communication, of course, you can. So the struggle for us, of course, is to innovate new ways in which to communicate, you know, intricate ideas. Without it being a subject to um, uh, being surveyed, uh, so this is a struggle for us. I think nobody's surprised when we talk about the surveillance state that this kind of technology exists. That is actually what a surveillance state is. That's what it does. And Brother Moses, can I hear your take on this particular article, the use of the iPhone? What do you, what would you say to our listening audience in terms of? For that information, what they'll need to know from your perspective. Yeah, um, it's definitely with the FYI type situation. Um, we need to know how to turn this thing off. That's the key thing, uh, so that so that we can protect our our personal space. Uh, the, the government obviously wants to track track and wants it's a totalitarian as much as possible in terms of control of our lives. And uh, this is the feature that, that will be in their interest. And, uh, and so but we have to know how to turn these things off. Thank you. Well, to the listening audience, you have been listening to Africa on the Move. That was for, our, for your information's sake, the segment. And what we're going to do, we're going to have to make a transition. Uh, we have come to the end of time. And I would like each one of my panelists and our guests today, Sister Celine, to just make a general final statement. Your final thoughts for tonight. 
We got let's start with that sister Celine who's been waiting patiently. Sister Celine, just for a couple of minutes, you'll find the thoughts please for the night. Oh, yes, I want to say that. Yes, I want to say that I'm very grateful oh, for this night, for the discussions that we have uh, made together. I want to thank you people for the interest that you have for Mother Africa and the suffering children. I want to pray that God will continue to keep you people, to give you people more wisdom on how to carry out the activities on how to liberate Africa because we need to be liberated. We need to be liberated from those colonial masters who are still manipulating and oppressing us and we need you people behind us because if we don't have people to be dead, us we will continue to suffer. Thank you people very much for what you are doing and we pray that you do more than that. God gives you people wisdom to do more than that. Thank you people very much. I thank everybody that we have been together. And I pray that you people can even help us in in America to solve this problem of crisis in Cameroon because our leaders, our secessionist leaders are there in America that you people can contact them and discuss also with them how this matter can be solved. Thank you people very much. Looking forward to seeing you people next week. Thank you, Sister Celine, for your contribution to today's program. Next, we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Yeah, it's been an interesting program. Uh, I look forward to another. Uh, I um, hope that people are studying uh, the social order, studying society, and getting a dialectical and historical materialist approach to problem solving. Uh, um, we we live in a, a world that's, that's not obvious. You have to. It's not common sense. It's it's science, and we have to look at things realistically. So as, as Brother Aki is fond of saying, we have to unravel the matrix. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And we now will go to Brother Aki. Brother Aki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, real quickly. African Land Association will travel the road of liberation and freedom. We'll be going to Cuba, and we'll be going to Guantanamo, Senegal de Cuba, and Havana. The trip will take place July 24th to July 31st. More information, we encourage you to call us at 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to Cuba and see for themselves firsthand what makes Cuba such a great place. Um, my second thing is, of course, you know, one of the things that when we talk about the struggle uh, that African people are confronted with, uh, we're being bombarded at all by, you know, at, at, at every conceivable angle. Uh, one of the things is that we, we all know about the viciousness of the intelligence community, FBI, CIA, uh, NSA, and so forth, in terms of working together to undermine African interests. But one of the things we don't know about often is how the church, the role they play in terms of undermining African interests. So we, we had a real challenge. And so it's incumbent upon us to create those institutions to think 
And by all means, when we do these programs, we, we, we humbly ask people to please follow up on what we're saying. Don't just take our word for it. Follow up on what we're saying and discover for yourself what's really going on. And as always, I encourage people, as Brother Moses would say, to unravel the matrix. And uh, you have a good night, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hackies, for today's contribution. And we now will go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes, my final thought for, thoughts for tonight are the All African People's Revolutionary Party is organizing African Liberation Day and Palestine Day 2019, uh, Saturday, May 18th, 2019, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. Our theme this year is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions and Revolutions, as illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela. Smash the repression industrial complex worldwide, remembering and honoring the birthdays of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. For more information, you can contact us at 202-239-2676. Thanks, and uh, organize and politically educate our people. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution as well for today's program. And to our listening audience, you are listening to Africa on the Move. We are a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. We encourage you to come and join us. If you have any views, ideas, or issues that you would like to discuss and share with us what's going on in your world community, you can do that by emailing us at Africa on the Move, the number two, at Gmail. Until next time, again, we'd like to give our shout-out, our love, and pay our remembering respects to our recent transition of our, my biological brother, Brother Cleveland Ape, Ape, Ape Green. He was born on March 23rd, 1945, made the transition to March 27, 2019. That will be a special tribute to him in Richmond, Virginia, on June the 1st. We'll share with you more information find next week on this particular tribute. Until next time, we're going to go to Mother Africa, do a cultural presentation in honor Mother Africa, and then it will be followed by lessons that we should learn by Brother Kwame Ture as we talk about the importance of consciousness. So we'll end at this point in time by going to Mother Africa, and you will hear a brief presentation on Kwame Ture as he speaks to the importance of consciousness. We must raise our consciousness if we're going to survive, move forward as a people. So we hope that you stay tuned and continue to listen to this program and share it with your network. Because the whole point is that we must be politically ed- educated and we must have conscious political education. That's the key to our survival. With proper education and organization, you know, all things are possible. Until next time, let's continue to scratch the forward hour, backwards novel. We now take you to Mama Africa. We thank you for listening to Africa on the moon.
still blazing a trail, even to death. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Kwame Ture, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966, when he hollered, Black Power! 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 What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, Brother Kwame Ture, let's give it up, Brother Kwame Ture. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here. Yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. 
And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who was uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, of course, we are always uh, honored to be with uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who act on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality and this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism it even had to bring in the American army very costly but since it was on instinct it had no reason nothing to direct it it would spin itself out those who participated in it were largely unconscious we must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious? when we consciously organized to rebel in Los Angeles with reason, I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland, nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. 
Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization. Something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist Association, uh, convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. 
one of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <coughs> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. 
This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference. We said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America, and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it, and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African-Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. And certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. 
Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news. Those who's running for president can't... <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, and a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, it, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. It is these pure, poor, that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew as a little girl, I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? 
This was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he's the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibilities to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This United Front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a united front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time, 
This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry. Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Bush. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his corps, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something and the enemy will knock it down. And you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life. Really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him, uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and when I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Kunstler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me. But I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, 
Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now let's let you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, 1982, I, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend, but the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming, and you know, he's sentimental minister can quote Bibles so he can sit down with preachers and all these others etc so after observing his movements uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front of course it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking I hadn't seen him in some time and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Muhammad and his force had been coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Muhammad Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Muhammad Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Muhammad Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. <laughs> Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. By 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? Well, it was 1984. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan, our party people in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. 
But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know, you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all. But even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know. He's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully. Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back, this is before, well, all you old people, so yeah, before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't bite his tongue for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded uh, Honorable Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil is out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a, dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience, so... He said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them. Really, I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you see everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You would look and you would see that. 
So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper. <laughs> the Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism is chauvinism. Look at them. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964 in Mohammed Speaks. In Mohammed Speaks. Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. <laughs> so what I'm worried about is when they spoil the union and it splits. You understand? Which side of the fence you going to be on? Because I know Jesse going to be with the Zionists. Because that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, I knew with the thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja Jex uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet with me? I said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting. He'll meet with you. I arranged a meeting at Johnny Jacobs' uh, office here in New York, in Manhattan. The first time they met each other, I just sat in the background, talk, talk, talk. So well did our meeting go that Minister Louis Farrakhan and Johnny Jacobs signed a letter that day issuing a call for a united front among the political organizations in this country. We have it in our files. When the time comes, we will demonstrate this. The Urban League has a copy, Farrakhan has a copy, and Major Thatcher, 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 Thatcher from Gary has a copy because at that time he was head of the mayors. And we were working with him, of course. Uh, of course, I went back to Africa. It didn't take me long before I heard all this nonsense about gutter religion, Judaism, gutter, or dirty religion, or whatever, whatever. And uh, Jesse having to uh, split from Farrakhan, and you know what happened. Of course, I knew it would happen. But when we were with uh, Jacobs, Minister Farrakhan, and myself, one of the things we agreed upon was that we must have the phone numbers of each other. They didn't even have each other's phone numbers. And we must have the house phone numbers. So that when we hear something on the radio that Farrakhan said this about Jacobs, before Jacobs attacks Farrakhan, Jacob will call Farrakhan and see if what the paper says is true. We agreed to this. We did agree to this. 
Of course, this was not written in the letter. This was a verbal commitment. But we're brothers. We can't lie. And I'm a revolutionary. I can't lie to you. Of course, when Jesse Jackson uh, made his split and the Zionists once again with a nice plot did everything, Johnny Jacobs, without calling Minister Farrakhan to see if in fact he made the statement, what was the content in which the statement was made, wrote public articles condemning Minister Louis Farrakhan. Once again, Zionism had come to block and destroy the unity of the African community. We are not stopping. And the Million and More March puts us properly in a position to create a united front in this country of the political organizations, given some semblance of unity and creating some atmosphere of unity where we can come to organize our people. I must tell you, the major enemy to our unity is Zionism. I tell you this as a result of over 30 years of constant struggle to organize and unify our people. I know them every step of the way. They are the slimiest slime that imperialism has ever produced. They will do everything to keep us divided. Want to run our own concepts for us, teach us. They fight to teach our children. Isn't that nice of them? Quite liberal. Quite liberal. Their job is to keep us enslaved. Their job is to control us. So that while controlling us, American imperialism and the right wing and the racist wing will be venting all their rage on us and on nobody else. But uh, we who are determined <laughs> see victory even in death. <laughs> We are going to have a united front. Our party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, has decided to direct its attention for the next three years into two major areas. In the 1960s, when COINTELPRO broke down and destroyed many organizations, and they did, they also destroyed coordination between organizations. Thus today, there is no coordination between organizations. And people come to think that the struggle in America is not like it was in the 60s. Why, America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. The people are more politically conscious. The conditions are worse. When you have falling conditions and rising consciousness, you've got to have an explosion. You've got to have it. Either it will be instinct which will be revolt, or either it will be reasoned and organized, which will be revolution. But you can be sure you're going to have an explosion. We say that people's conscience are rising more and more. Even movements that we never thought about in the 60s, like the women's movement, the ecology movement, they are spreading everywhere. The right wing in this country has made a proper shift. It no longer sees minorities as their major enemy, nor the left wing. It sees the U.S. government as their major enemy. America is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. Africans have a particular responsibility here 
to the struggles of their people and to their future generations in directing this struggle to be nothing other than a revolutionary struggle. I mean this in every sense of the word. If you look throughout history, as a matter of fact, uh, two days ago I was in Ohio and a journalist asked me, what do you think is the greatest contribution that the Africans have made to America? I said, help to civilize it. It's a fact. It's a fact. I know who I am. I know I'm equal to everybody else. They don't know it. They're the ones who have to be taught it, not me. Not me. So consequently, our job is to civilize America. If you look, this is exactly what we've been doing. Everywhere you see struggles for justice, you will see Africans out front, the first to die every time, in every battle. I mean, even go back to the American Revolution, Christmas Addicts. The first to die, instead of fighting with the Indians and joining up with the Indians and whooping George Washington. That's what he should have done. And that's why we must rectify the error today. Of course, Chinese say if you make an error, you know it's an error, you don't correct the error, you've made your second error. We have to correct that error. We're always on the front lines. Look at the history of the labor movement. Africans everywhere on the front lines. Look at the peace movement. They try to make it look like a white movement, but I know it was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that gave the slogan, Hell No, We Won't Go, and broke the draft in this country. And I know it was Martin Luther King who was the center of the peace movement in the anti-Vietnam War in this country. Once again, Africans up front in the fight for justice. Anywhere you look, you will see us up front. We're unconsciously up front. It is time for us to become consciously up front. This then is the task that we come to put before you, your responsibility. Every time we come here, we tell you this is our prop, this is our responsibility here. The capitalist system has but one job through its media. Make the Africans irresponsible. Make them frivolous. Make them hate themselves make them have low esteem of themselves. Just in one word, keep them demobilized and ineffective and tools for us when we need to exploit them and to turn them against their own people. This is their plan. We have to counteract this. We have to counteract this. And the television does it 24 hours a day, non-stop. We who say we are conscious cannot speak of being tired. As a matter of fact, even as a young boy, I remember sometimes seeing my father. You know, it's true, they don't make men the way they used to make them because I'll never be the man he was. <laughs> I'll never do what he did. I can't even try. <laughs> but I would see my father coming very, very tired from working, and I'd say to him, why don't you rest? He says, when I die, I will have enough time to rest. Uh, so from him, I've learned that. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. Yeah, because I can't rest now. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. I know if I can't rest now, I know I'm going to rest. <laughs> and I'm not like Martin Luther King. He sang free at last. I'm going to sing, I'm so glad I laid this burden down. 
But until I lay it down, I ain't going to make one squeak about it. I'm going to carry it with my head up, just like my grandmother carried her head up on plantations. Your job as the conscious is to make our unconscious conscious of their unconscious movements. This can only be done in organization. This can only be done in organization. We repeat it over and over again. Every time you see an intelligent man, intelligent woman, they don't attack the enemy unless they have some force behind them. I sometimes look at our brothers who go to jail. By themselves, they think they're going to go to jail and take on the enemy. Me? I've been to jail many, many times in my life, all over the world. And every time I've been to jail, all I do is get one message out to one member, any member of my organization, and my task is finished. My job is finished. My organization knows I'm in jail. Either I get out, they find to get me out, they can't get me out, I'm organizing in jail. But I ain't got to worry about no courts, no judges, no lawyers. The organization going to do that. That's why you need organization. The police arrest me tonight. By the morning, I'm walking out of jail, and the police going to be in trouble. Yeah, because they're going to find, they're going to find, they're going to find, look here. Let you show you a little tactic. When America bombed Libya in 1986,